So let's turn there. Our text is Genesis 3, 1 through 13. It'll be page 2 if you've raised your hand for a Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You should not eat of any tree that's in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees in the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your mercy on our ears and on our hearts. I ask that you would edify your church through the preaching of your word. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The kind of the main point of this text, I would say, is the temptation to choose our way and reject God's word is perilous. And it's the reason why we're in this mess. Our text kind of breaks up into three parts, and the first part is verses 1 through 5, and that is a contrary voice. So it's interesting, Genesis 1, 3, 1 through 5, enters into a harmonious world, Genesis 1 and 2, and that world really is solely governed by God's voice. And that's what makes our section so unique, there really has, we've only heard from God other than a small statement from Adam. So here we meet the first contrary voice, and it's a new voice. You can think of an, an orchestra, all the instruments playing in harmony, and all of a sudden one kind of screeches. Everything kind of stops, and our attention goes to that one person. In a sense, that's what the serpent is, is in this text. Everything kind of pauses for a minute as our, as our attention is drawn to him. So let's look at verse 1. Before he speaks, the Bible tells us a little bit about this serpent. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. So we can see something here. For one, the serpent is simply part of God's creation. And we know that God made everything good. And God called Adam to name everything. So we know that Adam had sovereignty over this uh, creation. And we know that Adam and Eve were told to subdue the creation. So in this regard, the serpent walks onto this scene rather subtly and harmlessly. Nothing to worry about, right? 
Well, the text does say he's crafty. That word can simply just mean shrewd. It can mean a sharp wit. So we know it's not too much to worry about, but the text just says he is more crafty. And he can speak, and he also speaks things about God. And the tension builds for us as New Testament believers as we know that later Revelation says that this is actually, this serpent is controlled by Satan. And who is Satan? The Bible says that he is the one who's been lying from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, the accuser of God's people, one who makes, wants to make God's people suffer. So the tension builds for us, and this does pose some large questions. Why is he like this? Why is he here? But the text isn't interested in answering those questions. The Bible is clear that God in no way created evil. He's no way the cause of sin or culpable for it in any way. And look at verse 1 again. It does give us a glimmer of hope in this direction. It says that Yahweh God made this serpent along with everything else. So God is above. Only he is preexistent. Only he is in control and sovereign. And we also know that God created everything good. So here the subtle serpent comes onto the scene. And that should be something that is very sobering for us as a church. This is how the devil will come. Here he is trying to get into the garden, into God's place. How will he try to get in here? So creation comes to Eve and speaks. And what does he say? Look again to verse 1b. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this seems like a harmless question, doesn't it? Almost like a clarification. But this is where he begins his subtle attack. He's sending Eve an invitation to rise above God's word and judge God's word. And he does this first by placing doubt in the heart of Eve. You see, this question is the first brushstroke that the serpent uses to paint the first knockoff picture of God in human history. With this question, his first brushstroke doesn't paint God as good at all. Here the serpent tries to plant doubt into Eve's mind by distorting God's word. The distortion is designed to show God as harsh and rather restrictive. Look what it says. It says, you sh did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It seems like a stern word the serpent is saying. Did he really say that? And church, this is how he's starting. If you want to twist reality, you twist God's word. It's God's word that tells us what is most real. Any other voices should make us run. And this sediment of, has God really said? Has he actually said? That's trickled down through the ages. It's, it's, our, our modern society is based on the fact that God hasn't said anything at all. Matter of fact, when God's word's brought up, he's charged, it's charged with immorality or harshness. Has God really said that he just wants robots to do his will? No. Has God really said that women are second class? No. Read Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So he's trying to plant doubt. So what will Eve's response be? That's what we're wanting to hear now. Will she set the serpent straight on what God's word actually says? Look at verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, we may, not, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, 
lest you die. So again, on the surface, this doesn't seem to be too bad of a response. But it misses the force that the pinnacle of creation should have had in response to the creation. And her, her response actually gives us hints that this little subtle deception has starting to take root. And it shows a few things. She actually, the first thing it shows is, is that she diminishes God's benevolence just ever so slightly. Diminishes the privileges of God. She says, look again in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit trees in the garden. But look at chapter 2, verse 16. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. So she's left out two important words, and that, and that shows us that she's not focused on that goodness of God that said you can surely eat of every tree. And something else is off about Eve's response. She adds an addition to a vital command. Look at verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. So she's revealing that she's actually seeing God's word as harsh. So she's starting to buy this picture, this knockoff picture painted by the serpent. And yet, look at, again at verse 3. She's leaving out something that's most concerning. She, she, takes an, she replaces a word with another. In verse 3 at the end, it says, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So this is the, something, this is the most jarring piece of evidence that something's off here. She's diminishing the consequence of disobedience. You can almost think of a classroom. Think of a classroom, and the teacher's got rules. And there's consequences for breaking those rules. And yet, if the class starts to see those rules as harsh, or you know, they don't even come with any consequences, it's not hard to see how that classroom will be quickly disobeying those rules. Easily dismissing them. And we, uh, you can see how that applies to God's Word. Why would I consider other people's interests over my own? seems rather harsh. Why would I forgive? Why would I turn the other cheek? Church, let's be vigilant in cherishing both the, the goodness of, both the God, of God's commands to enjoy something and refrain from doing something. Or else the voices of our prevailing culture and even our fleshly hearts will have us making alterations to God's word. Maple Avenue Baptist Church one day might find itself adding to this knockoff picture of God, if we do this. And again, we long to hear a correcting voice. But yet, it's the serpent who speaks again in verse 4. Look at verse 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So here the serpent paints the, as God as a liar, his word as a barrier, he depicts God as deceptive. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. So the serpent just doesn't just contradict God, but he provides a contrary word to God's. One that seems like it will lead to further enjoyment, further blessing. You remember that God, when he spoke to man and gave him the commands, he says, the Bible said, it was a blessing. 
He removes fears from Eve. He's starting to see that Eve is actually starting to take this invitation. So he now is removing all fears that there would be any consequence. You shall not surely die. And what really is he luring her with? It's a path upward. It's ascension. It's a greater knowledge, God-like status. And the ticket to get there is disobedience. What a lie. Again, we crave a corrective voice. One that says something like, be like God. We already are like God. We're made in his image. Charged with ruling over the creation. We already know good and evil. God is the arbiter of that. But instead of a corrective response, we see no more words, but we see the heart motives of Eve. This leads us to point number two. Acceptance of the lie and rejection of God's word, verses 6 and 7. Let's read those. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So let's stop there. We're given a glimpse here into what Eve is fixated on. She's fixated on what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil can offer her. We see the language of satisfaction. Only God declares what is good. And yet she says she saw that the tree was good. Look to me at 2, 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the eyes, to the sight, and good for food. So she's getting her eyes off the pleasant things that God has given and provided and on to something else. Her desire is shifting. These verses are also absent of any struggle. There's no voice to God. There's no prayer. There's no corrective word from Adam. And I think to sum up verse 6, the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer say it best. Listen to these words, church. He says, With irresistible power... Desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or love of fame. Joy in God is extinguished as we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. And only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. End quote. So sin's origin we're seeing here is in the heart. And church, we should just pause there and think about us. We have the tendency to sin. We just saying that our hearts are prone to wander. We need to be constantly reminding each other, involved in each other's lives, reminding each other of the deceitfulness of sin. Eve here is on a slippery slope. She's seeing, she's desiring, and she's taking the fruit. We need to be so involved in each other's lives that we are actively speaking the truth of God together into one another's lives. Because we could easily be falling into similar temptation. So pride is the root, but this action really is carried out by unbelief. She took it, she saw it, she ate it, and she gave some to her husband. This action was an action of unbelief. But let's look on to the, to the end of chapter, of verse um, 6. 
She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. This is the most startling verse in the section. Adam was there. He was present. He was sitting in the background the whole time. That voice of corrective, a correction that we've wanted to hear, it was there, but it was silent. Unwilling to act as part of the creation, tempted and lured his wife into disobeying their good father. Adam was the one who God gave his word to. He charged Adam, gave his commands. Adam was to protect and guide his home. It's a failure of epic proportions. He forgot to wield the word of God. God's word is life. And Adam did not bring it to bear. Rather, he participated. This was an act of treason on Adam's part. And this is why Adam in the rest of Scripture is spoken of as the one who's responsible. Adam's sin. Adam's sin is what the Bible says plunged humanity into darkness. And this all ensued when God's word was forgotten. And what's, what is sin, we might ask now? What is sin? Well, the Bible said that sin is lawlessness. It's transgressing the word of God. One preacher put it like this, he says, sin is dishonoring God by preferring things other than him and acting on those preferences. So sin is first and foremost a rejection of God's word and it's a sin against God. Transgresses his holiness. Well, would the devil's promises be received? Let's look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their eyes were promised to be opened, and yes, they were opened. That's what the devil said, but to what end? Here we see that their eyes were opened to sin and to evil. They were now aware of what they were capable of thinking and doing and desiring, and it broke the relationship between Adam and Eve fractured relationships that exist in our world, this is where they began. They were ruined, lost in a world of shame. And it's texts like this where we can derive the doctrine of original sin. This is where corruption spread like a tsunami over the human race. Corruption instantly overtook Adam and Eve. And now it has spread to everyone who comes from them. Romans 5.12 says that from this one act of disobedience of Adam, that sin and death spread to all men. So this, this is the reason for the hurt and the pain, the lives of fractured relationships, of sin bearing itself in so many ways in our lives. This is the origin. This is why we are mean to others and people are mean to us. It's a reason for family discord, strife, enmity, anger, lust. Sin now marks our interactions with people. You see, this is spiritual death. God says, if you eat of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And they did. This is spiritual death. And this is a sad reality, church, as we if we just look forward, a few chapters in Genesis are going to realize that spiritual death leads to physical death. And the Bible says that physical death leads to eternal death and separation. 
such terrible consequences of this sin. Adam and Eve actually now find themselves enslaved to what they wanted. And as sad as this verse is, there's further consequences for us to see. Let's move on to point three. Fractured relationships with God. So first we're going to see in verse eight that this relationship with God is now estranged. Look to me at verse eight. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees in the garden. This is sad because hearing the sound of Yahweh walking through the garden would have been an invitation to enjoy him, to experience that close fellowship, like a father with a son. And now that sound actually brings dread and fear. Church, imagine standing before a holy God, bathed in all his perfections, in sin, with only a man-made covering to protect us. That is a scary thought. Praise God for the righteous robes of Christ. Sadly, they run from their father. They run from Yahweh. The one who loved them and provided for them, cared for them, they now flee from. Intimacy severed. And sadly, our world still runs from God. We still run from God. And we tend to shrink away from Him, even us as a church, when we get our eyes off the gospel. We can get caught up in works-based religion. We can get caught up in feeling that if we're accepted by God, only if we've had a good day previous. Getting our eyes off the gospel. We can focus more on our sin than God's grace, keeping us from going to Him. Even our emotions can keep us and make us shrink away from God. Make us feel less close to Him. So we see here that they fled from the presence of God and really the rest of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the story of how God is bringing us back into His presence. And it's, it's amazing that that isn't because we sought Him first or dealt with our sin with man-made coverings, but it's because God sought us first. It will be him that deals with this brokenness. And we see this hinted at in verse 9. Look at verse 9. But Yahweh God called to the man and said, Where are you? This is a small hint at the compassionate heart of God. That though lost in sin, he's not done. Not done pursuing us. But let's look at now 9 through 13. Relationship marked by guilt. So let's look at verse 10. So God asks, where are you? And look at Adam's response. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So we see that sin leads to guiltiness before God. And that guiltiness before God leads to fear of God. But though Adam is guilty, he even explains what he did. And, but there's no cry of repentance Adam misses out here on, a, on an opportunity to say with the psalmist, Have mercy upon me, O God. Here I am in my sin and my shame. I need your forgiveness. I'm in desperate need. But he doesn't say that. Look at verse 11. God asks two more questions. He says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
So God is asking him here a point-blank question. Have you disobeyed me? And all we hear from the man is judgment. Look at verse 12. He says, The man said, to the, said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Here's Adam, and he's actually saying to God, that good gift you gave me, that wife that you gave me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that was a perfect compliment to me to actually live out all that you've asked me to do. She's rather a hindrance to me. She did it. He's blaming her. And let's, even, let's look again at verse 12. There's something even more sad here. The woman whom you gave to me. Who's he really blaming here, church? He's blaming God. And like many of sons of Adam who have come, we shake our fist at God. We can often do this. We love to think our sin is never really our sin. It's always the result of someone else. It's not me. It's the circumstance. It's person X. Instead of looking within even to the point where we can be angry at God. And it's interesting, this text has shown an inversion of God's created order. And God here addresses man properly. God addresses man, and then he addresses the woman. But in Genesis 3, 1 through 13, the creation tempted Eve with no voice from Adam to disobey God. So look at verse 13. God now addresses the woman. And he says, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And again, the blame just continues to be passed on to somebody else. And so as we come to the close of our text, I think we're meant to just sit here. Sit in sin. See its ugliness. See all that's wrong with sin. All that's wrong with forgetting God's word. To see how it touches our hearts and affects us even today. It is a sad passage. So we might ask, is there any mercy? Is there any hope? Maybe today you're sitting here and your sin is overwhelming. And you're seeing it now for the first time. Brothers, the same passage in the New Testament that tells us about Adam's sin, his one act of disobedience, and how that spread, death spread through that one act, also tells us about an act of another man. Jesus. And unlike Adam, his obedience brought about the free gift of righteousness. This righteousness from, by grace, unmerited favor. So you might ask yourself, how does Jesus have a righteousness like this even to offer? Well, the Bible says that he is both God and man, and that he did what Adam could not do. He, when he was out in the wilderness, withstood that temptation to reject God's word. He held fast to God's word. He defeated those temptations. And while he knew many of the same temptations and weaknesses that we feel, he was sinless. He obeys God's word perfectly. The Bible says even to the point of death, it was his food to do the will of the Father. And thus, by doing that, he filled up for us a righteousness that was, that was needed for sinners, to save sinners. So before us today is a communion table, remembering this death of Christ 
that it is the perfect sacrifice for sin, the perfect sacrifice to heal our hearts and cleanse our consciences, to heal the hearts of men. And as we looked at this table, we remember the death and we, uh, of Christ, and we hear the words saying, take and eat. The word of God is to come this morning. Come and partake of Christ. Come in faith. And this food, unlike the fruit that Adam and Eve took and ate that corrupted them, this is now food that heals and brings forgiveness and reconciliation. And it doesn't just give us a righteousness. It doesn't just forgive us from our sin. It actually does what Adam was running from. Adam was running from the presence of God. The work of Christ brings us back to God. We can again have fellowship with him. So unlike Adam, we no longer have to run from God. We don't have to hide. We actually wait with anticipation of God's presence when we will see his face. So you might ask yourself, how can this be for me? The Bible is fairly clear. It's a free gift to be received by repentance and faith. So run to him. You won't be turned away. Run to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for Christ. I thank you that through him we have forgiveness. Through his death we have life. I thank you for this text which shows the ugliness of sin. I pray, Lord, that we be people of your word, clinging to the cross and your Bible. Help us be a church that proclaims the word and lives the word. In Jesus' name, amen.